Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm Czarna Berkovic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Natalia Rudakova about her new book, Losing Pravda, Ethics and the Press in Post-Truth Russia. Losing Pravda was published last year by Cambridge University Press. Natalia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Natalia, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I was born in Russia, in uh, the city of Kazan, the capital of the Republic of Tatarstan over there. I finished my undergraduate work in Russia, and I came to Stanford, uh, Department of Cultural and Social Anthropology. That's where I did my uh, graduate work. Then for many years, I worked at the University of California in San Diego in the Department of Communication. And most recently, I've been a visiting scholar in the Department of Media and Communication at Erasmus University in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Thank you. Um, how did you come to write Losing Pravda? Losing Pravda began as uh, my dissertation project, of course, as with many of these projects. I had to make sense of the post-Soviet transformation that I lived through as a a, a young adult and as a student in Kazan. And there was really no question for me for what to go back to, uh, to try to study it ethnographically. So going to Russia and picking a group of people who have gone through the transformation, who have perhaps uh, gone through the most radical version of it was what I was after. And I considered studying a number of people, uh, a number of groups, medical doctors, university professors, judges, and journalists, because those groups have gone through a very significant change as I was growing up and coming of age. I ended up studying journalists because I was closest to them in my educational background. So the dissertation was about the deprofessionalization of journalism after the fall of the Soviet Union, this sort of unexpected outcome of the unraveling, professional unraveling of journalism after the fall of the Soviet Union, instead of this thriving public sphere and freedom of the press that liberal reformers expected. But losing Pravda is much about that, but it's also much about other things as well. Because after I finished the dissertation and sat on it for a little while, I thought there is a bigger story here than just the dissolution of journalism as a profession. And I ended up realizing or arriving at a conclusion that when a profession of journalism devolves in this particular way that I describe in the book, the society-wide need and desire to seek truth and to speak to power devolves with it. So that's the bigger claim that I end up making in the book. So it was sort of a two-step process that way, the writing of the book. 
Mm-hmm. And um, in the very first pages of the book, you mentioned that the book Losing Pravda challenges a dominant narrative about journalism during the Soviet Union and afterwards. Uh, and it does so by offering a new ethics-based vocabulary for discussing journalism in non-democratic settings. You, you mentioned, uh, as you have now, the central categories of your analysis are truth-seeking and truth-telling. So could you tell us a bit about this new ethics-based vocabulary that you offer? And how does Losing Pravda challenge this dominant narrative about Soviet and post-Soviet journalism by evoking truth-seeking and truth? Yes, the dominant narrative is something that I have come to embrace eventually in the sense that I had to deal with it as I wrote about it. The dominant narrative of what happened in Russia with media after the fall of the Soviet Union is this. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last uh, Soviet leader, ends up uh, introducing Glasnost as a principle of openness and transparency and removes the limitations on uh, freedom of speech, removes censorship from Soviet media. And so during Gorbachev and then during Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, the first Russian president, the first democratically elected president, we have the dominant narrative goes. We have freedom of the press in Russia. We have uh, a thriving public sphere. We have a lot of different media outlets, independent and uh, and strong. And uh, all of this starts to be derailed by media-related oligarchs in the late 1990s. And uh, then who, who start to use media as weapons in their information wars against one another, and that's continuing the narrative again. Um, When Vladimir Putin comes to power, he continues to kind of constrict the roles of journalists and the amount of independent decision-making that they can do, uh, and also imposes a whole lot of new limitations on uh, media and journalists' And so as a result, we have a really kind of burnt out space, public space for journalism in the 2000s and 2010s. So that's that's the big arc of how Westerners usually, and educated intellectuals and others in the West understand what has happened in Russia with media and politics. I find this narrative dissatisfying because it gives a lot of agency to these big actors, the presidents, the oligarchs, whereas the processes of cultural and political transformation of the profession as such and of society that is in relation to this profession of journalism are not uh, studied. So I ended up looking at things in this way. The ethics-based vocabulary, as I say, is um, in line with the ethics turn in anthropology and with within the social sciences more broadly. We have um, this, or what, what I'm proposing is to use some of those tools that we have from speech act theory even and other approaches uh, that pay attention to the uptake of messages. Usually those are in uh, personal relations. That's what we pay attention in personal relations. How does the speaker 
come across as being trustworthy, as being thorough, as being sincere, as being as caring for the audience that they're talking to, as being serious, as being able to stand by the words that they say, as being committed to certain kinds of ideas. In uh, I, I borrow a lot from Austin, really, uh, John Austin, and uh, the the work that he's done with how to do things with words, and and um, the uptake by anthropologists of ethics since then on how uh, hum- how we people who listen to others judge the trustworthiness of others, how we judge them as particular kinds of ethical actors. And I extend that to mediated messages or mediated communication. Uh, I imagine that we as mass media audiences do much of the same work when we judge uh, often unwittingly, often subconsciously, often without awareness. We judge who the public speakers are, who we're listening to, journalists being, uh, of course, the public speakers as our politicians and others, public intellectuals as well. So uh, to what extent or what is going on in this kind of subtle uh, judging of by audiences of what we're being told, how we're being, being told certain things, uh, how do we judge speakers to be particular kinds of human beings worthy or not worthy of our attention, trust, and care? Um, thank you. Let us unpack this major argument by going through the chapters uh, of the book in more detail. So in chapter one, you demonstrated that people had more trust in journalists during the Soviet Union than later on in post-socialist Russia. Could you perhaps briefly tell us how this was possible? So how were the relations between journalists, their readers, and the Communist Party organized in the Soviet Union? Yes, that's one of the really interesting findings I end up with as part of this work, is that the relations between media audiences and journalists and the party in the Soviet Union were much more complex than we normally think about because we only have this notion of Soviet propaganda and the audiences being kind of checked out at best from it. I pay attention or I turn my attention to the social relations between the audiences, readers, the newspapers mostly because we're still talking about that period. Uh, I pay attention to how Soviet journalists had a very particular mandate from the party, in fact. Uh, They were clearly co-participants in the Soviet socialist governing project. Uh, What what that meant uh, for a journalist is that they were expected uh, and given the mandate from the party to hold the socialist ideals uh, up in front of audiences, which meant that Soviet journalists had the job of uh, making sure that this connection, this ethical and moral connection between the Soviet state and Soviet citizens was kept alive somehow. Uh, Soviet journalists were obligated to respond to all the letters and phone calls and personal visits to newspapers that Soviet citizens made, and they made those en masse often because they felt like they had this uh, uh, connection to journalists who were 
seen as the, the readers representatives before other Soviet bureaucracies when those bureaucracies have failed Soviet citizens in particular ways. So instead of turning to lawyers, for instance, with grievances of various kinds when a Soviet citizen wasn't given of what they had been promised in social services or um, other kinds of uh, um, redistributive goods, Soviet citizens went to journalists, and journalists represented uh, citizens in many ways before Soviet bureaucracies. How did they do that? They often took up a grievance and followed through on it by calling uh, officials, by investigating what had happened. Oftentimes, this didn't make it into newspaper pages. There was a lot of work that journalists did behind the scenes on behalf of citizens because they saw this as a very important part of their work. But some investigations like that did make it into newspaper pages. We know not a lot about that in the West. There's a substantial amount of Soviet investigative journalism that had been going on. And the reason for that was that the reason or why some of it was allowed in the Soviet press, is that the Soviet uh, newspapers had to be the place where the Soviet power was being seen as accountable to Soviet citizens. So every investigation was a way for every investigation that made it into the newspaper pages. And I spent a lot of time showing how there was a lot of back and forth between editors and uh, party officials. Of course, it was very difficult to get any kind of investigative piece into the Soviet newspapers. But nevertheless, the, the fact that some officials were criticized for what they have done and often punished for what they have done was a very important component of the governmental practices in the Soviet Union. Uh, Soviet journalists could not be seen as cynics in the other uh, and complete uh, meaning of the term because they had to be seen that or they had to show uh, to the viewers and, uh, and the readers that there was some moral component to the Soviet project that was being um, maintained. Thank you. Um, it was really interesting to learn that in Soviet Russia, there was something that you call epistemological realism. So an agreement over what truth is and the belief that there is only one real truth. So the assumption was, from what I understand, that people may or may not know the real truth, but that it is there out in the world and that it can be known. And this was, as you say, a very modernist belief. Um, and this belief enabled journalists to sometimes engage this courageous speech, to speak truth to power. So could you perhaps briefly describe how this speaking truth to power um, took place and what happened with epistemological realism after the fall of, of uh, the Soviet Union? Yes, thank you for that question. What I call epistemological realism is the belief indeed that truth is a solid concept or phenomenon and it is out there and it can be difficult to find, but it exists in the singular and it matters a lot and seeking it is worthwhile and asserting it is worthwhile, especially asserting it to power. I talk about how Soviet dissidents, of course, engaged in that 
uh, argument Soviet journalists did to, not argument, the search for it. Uh, Soviet scientists were engaged in it and um, Soviet intellectuals more broadly. So uh, what in many cases I talk about is the coupling of the concept of truth and the concept of justice together because in Russian the concept of the word for truth seeking uh, is the same word as justice seeking so it was um, a belief that or a practice and a belief together that meant that it is worthwhile to seek truth, like I said, and to assert it, and different ki kinds of political actors and civic actors were engaged in it. Now, one part of the story here is that I go back to the notion of truth-seeking as uh, something that was central to Soviet socialism, as a uh, key component of uh, of that particular political formation. Uh, I rely a lot on Michel Foucault's later work on Parisia or Parisia, uh, where it's a concept he develops toward the, uh, Foucault develops toward the end of his life, and a lot of people have been picking up on it in the past um, you know, five or ten years, uh, because with Parisia he is trying to trace. Parisi uh, uh, is a practice of uh, speaking truth uh, to, uh, to powerful interlocutors. It's a particular kind of courageous speech that is done from a position of less power to uh, into the face of uh, those who have more power. So it's a very different uh, take that Foucault uh, has on the relation between truth and power than his earlier than than, than his, his earlier work uh, with discipline and punish, for instance, and other works. Uh, and with Parisia, it's of course a practice in ancient Greece. That's what the word uh, that's where the word comes from. So um, the idea there is that it's um, it's a way of working on oneself, but also contributing to society that is an ethical, simultaneously an ethical practice and a political practice as well. So with Parisia Foucault, he uh, was planning to trace the kind of the, the lineage of critical thinking in Western political liberal thought, but it's actually not only limited to political liberalism. Uh, it, it, I argue that uh, Parisia or the seeking truth and speaking it to power was critical to uh, state socialism as a political project, as a political formation, as an ethical formation as well. And here I draw uh, on the inspirational work by um, a scholar of uh, a historian, um, Stephen Kotkin, who has who is the first one to uh, bring these uh, this kind of vocabulary into the study of the Soviet Union. So, yes, I look at the at state socialism and uh, its maintenance over the 70 years that we had it in the Soviet Union as uh, crucially relying on the speaking out or speaking up on the part of regular citizens, but also on the part of journalists 
uh, as a way to realign the ethical and the political, if you will, in the socialist project, as a way to um, assert that state socialism was, an, was a live formation, uh, that it had a relationship to human world, to moral world, to life world of people who uh, participated in that project. And it's, it would not have lasted, I argue, as long as it did but state socialism, if it didn't have that kind of human, moral, ethical component to it, that, that was periodically affirmed publicly in many settings. So um, I tried to revive that kind of thread within socialism without uh, denying, of course, that there were many uh, reprehensible practices, political and ethical practices in the Soviet Union. That's, that's a criticism I've gotten uh, quite a bit throughout working on the book and the writing of it, is that I tend to focus on the kind of quote-unquote more positive aspect of state socialism and don't focus on the more negative ones, uh, uh, like the practices of uh, official denunciation of dissidents in the press, uh, like um, coming down on uh, political uh, non-conformists in the press, like, um, of course, a lot of censorship, like the fact uh, that much of the work uh, of Soviet journalists couldn't be published if uh, compared to what they wanted to do. So I don't deny any of those practices, and uh, those practices very much co uh, corresponded or uh, coexisted with the parts, uh, the, the more positive parts of um, state social as a project and uh, toward the end of state uh, socialist period uh, so after the Khrushchev period of the 60s and, and then into the 70s and 80s Soviet journalists often felt like they were the only kind of social force that was holding the power accountable to its original tenets of socialism uh, journalists believed in the late Soviet period, at least, that I studied, that they were truly the uh, the carriers of the kind of ethical and moral meanings of socialism, and that the party has corrupted itself uh, almost beyond repair. So there was a lot of very interesting relations between journalists and the party members at the time that my other colleagues in Soviet history have also been exploring. Uh, in chapter two, you discuss how privatization of the media led to deprofessionalization of journalism. So many journalists in the 1990s suddenly felt that they were left on their own in a way, and that they were working primarily for themselves. Their sense of responsibility for the public good um, withered away. So how was this possible? How did post-socialist transformation of the media affect the need to seek truth and to, to speak it to power? Yes, that's a really tragic part of a dramatic and tragic part of it all for me right at the time when Gorbachev indeed opens up the country and journalists are finally able to act on their desire to correct the problems with socialism that they had seen all along uh, the economic crisis of massive proportions descends on to Russia first at the end of the Soviet Union and then in the early several years of the post-Soviet period, uh, hyperinflation and just the collapse, general collapse of the planned economy mean that at the very time when the desire to establish newly independent media outlets and to 
kind of allow the thriving of the seeking truth and seeking truth that journalists have been looking forward to for a very long time. Just at that very time, they are there are literally no economic resources for media outlets to survive on their own. I have many very dramatic stories there in the book of how journalists are uh, in are faced with the situation where they want to be doing what they know best how to do and what they want to be doing, but they have to beg for money wherever they can. They often have to turn to barter. barter. They have to go to political official officials in politics or people running for political positions. Often it's business people, newly minted, nouveau riche business people who come from the black market background who end up wanting to run for political posts in order to get bigger and bigger pieces of the former state property to continue to enrich themselves in the post-Soviet period. So these are the sources of financing for the newly minted independent outlets. There is no consumer advertising to go around because the economy is in shambles and people don't have money to use a subscription model in order to to consume the media. So journalists, uh, post-Soviet journalists and editors end up in, and publishers, uh, broadcasters end up in this really tough spot where they cannot do what they do without having to compromise uh, their stances uh, in order to meet the political and economic demands of their new sponsors and owners. So it doesn't take a very long time for the viewers and the readers to realize that what is going on is a, a, a pretty fast-paced corruption of the core of what journalism is about. I end up talking about how journalists end up having to sell their truth-seeking skills or to monetize their truth-seeking skills, in fact, in order to survive. And uh, very, very many people leave the profession. They quit en masse uh, in the early 1990s because they cannot simply cannot handle this. And those who stay, they end up making some compromise in journalism. They end up making compromises between um, themselves and their conscience. And uh, still many, many more people enter the profession from the street, so to speak, uh, in uh, understanding that uh, the new rounds of election campaigning, for instance, can bring money into the media. And so um, some people come into the media to simply make some money and then leave. It looks as if journalists are less able to seek and tell the truth in the post-socialist uh, period than they were during uh, communism. So what happened with epistemological realism uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and what, what took its place? What would you say? I think that, or rather the way I put it is that epistemological relativism starts to come into um, the picture. And a couple of components there are very important. One is that the belief is out there and it's worth looking for finding, you know, it will fall over, but eventually it's reached anyway. That belief has to give way at the end of the Soviet Union to uh, a more classic liberal notion of multiple truths, of uh, multiple 
perspectives on things that can sometimes be irreconcilable. This idea that uh, there are no facts but only interpretations that uh, is so natural already to Western audiences uh, is uh, is new in the post-Soviet period. There's a reason why Nietzsche was uh, not very favored by Soviet authorities, and you couldn't read it when you were a student there still. But uh, so, so that's kind of a, just a classical liberal idea, politically liberal idea, that there are multiple takes on things, and uh, they can be irreconcilable often. And that is okay. That is something that journal, Soviet, Soviet former Soviet journalists have to grapple with, and Soviet audiences that were brought up by Soviet journalists also have to grapple with. So that's one component. But another component, I think, has to do with capitalism as a certain kind of political and moral formation as well that gets introduced into the picture very quickly. And um, if we take a Marxist perspective on it, which I think is appropriate here, is uh, capitalism is based on a lot of um, false values, on the creation of false values. And uh, it requires a certain amount of toleration for lying because without it, no amount of advertising or advertising or politic, uh, public relations or electoral campaigns uh, would not make sense without it. So that's another kind of blow that gets delivered to that notion of epistemological realism in the late Soviet period. So between those two things, uh, there's a certain disillusionment with this notion that truth can be found, that it's real, it's out there, that uh, the disillusionment that is felt by the journalists and the audiences together. But then the audiences are very quickly picking up on the fact that journalists are in a super tight spot and journalists are trying their best in to maintain a modicum of moral integrity, but they're having a very hard time doing that. And uh, reading and listening and viewing audiences pick up on that very quickly. So they start to realize that the journalists that they knew are no longer able to be who they used, who they used to be. The kinds of moral and ethical actors they used to be are no longer there. And um, there is just a lot of moral confusion that uh, happens. So uh, that's how you know we, we could call this a post-truth, an early post-truth moment, uh, where this sense of moral certainties. Uh, that used to exist is no longer there. And there's also a lot of cynicism, I guess. I particularly like that you demonstrate that cynicism needs to be understood as a historical formation. So in chapter four, um, you show that cynicism had a different form in the late Soviet period and in the post-Soviet period. So could you perhaps explain to our listeners how cynicism changed its character um, with the fall of, of the Soviet Union and what it means to approach cynicism as a historically shaped um, disposition. Yes, that's one of the bigger c- discoveries that I also end up making is that as soon as I started to pay attention to cynicism, I realized that it's a very complex phenomenon and uh, it's hard to talk about it in the singular. Um, I do end up giving a, a working definition of cynicism for uh, the purposes of the book. Um, and then I show how it, in fact, it differs across uh, historical periods. 
at the core of cynicism, and I borrow this from different philosophers, uh, Peter Sloterdijk in particular, a German philosopher who has written a big magisterial book on cynicism in the 20th century. Uh, I, I borrow from him that at the core of cynicism as a, uh, as a phenomenon is this tension, uh, this very active tension between a certain kind of distancing from ideology, putting some kind of space between yourself and a set of ideals that is imposed on you or um, that, that's out there. Uh, so a certain kind of distancing and then a certain kind of disinhibition uh, or a reassertion of a set of ideals uh, anyway. So it's, it's this back and forth between moving away from a set of ideals and saying kind of, I, it's not about me. I can see through this set of ideals and a, a certain kind of reaffirmation of, um, of a different set of ideals, uh, perhaps when you kind of can no longer uh, can no longer stay silent or can no longer um, withdraw away from politics when you finally uh, just feel like you have to uh, to come out there and say it like it is. So uh, that tension, though, what kind of shape that tension is going to take uh, depends, I think, on historical. Uh, period and historical formation. So uh, in the Soviet period, I think uh, you have um, a certain kind of awareness on the part of the uh, people as a whole that you, that official Soviet pronouncements and proclamations and uh, Soviet slogans and Soviet forms of discourse that uh, became sort of wooden, almost wooden-like or almost uh, to formulate um, what uh, anthropologist Alexei Yurchak calls the hegemony of Soviet form, Soviet ideological form. Uh, those uh, those kinds of formations, uh, linguistic and discursive formations, people have, uh, knew how to take a certain amount of distance from it. Uh, at the same, so that was a, comp a component of Soviet cynicism that has been well studied in uh, Soviet and Russian studies. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, people in the Soviet, late Soviet period were able to um, keep that little bit of distance from the official Soviet discourse, while at the same time maintaining or experiencing more positive components of uh, the socialist project uh, in other ways. So it's... It was, it was this, regardless of this, so, so it was a good kind of balancing act, well, I don't know if it was good or not, but it was this balancing act between realizing that uh, a lot of state socialist discourse has uh, kind of solidified it, to, it into its own thing and one wasn't necessarily interested in being part of that, but at the same time that state socialism was still a legitimate form of government, that it had a lot of solid things going for it uh, in terms of ideals and beliefs, and uh, one was able to relate to those and periodically kind of reassert those, uh, sometimes in, but precisely by pointing out this kind of 
disconnect between official Soviet rhetoric uh, and uh, broader goals and ideals and visions and hopes um, and desires of uh, state socialism. In the post-Soviet period, we have the same kind of tension at the core of cynicism, I think, between uh, one's distancing from uh, a set of ideals and a reassertion of some kind of um, some kind of beliefs again. But what we end up having is that the, there is a big moral confusion that sets in after the fall of socialism. Uh, liberalism with its positive connotations of human rights and individual liberties and freedom of speech and democracy and so forth. Liberalism does not take root in the same way uh, in the moral imagination, uh, uh, the positive connotations of liberalism do not take root in the moral imagination of post-Soviet uh, people to the same extent that state socialist ideals and goals continue to be legitimate with Soviet populations. So um, we have the kind of cynicism we have uh, in the post-Soviet period is we have this distancing from liberalism. We have this distancing from democracy. We have this distancing from um, uh, notions of individual uh, human rights and so forth. And as far as reaffirmation of, uh, an, or uh, yeah, reaffirmation of a set of ideals and goals, that is the second part of cynicism. We have this reaffirmation that everyone is um, on their own. Everyone is looking out for their personal interests. Uh, nobody is out there uh, looking out for you. It's it's kind of a, a set of beliefs that is really kind of uh, just very disheartening and very difficult to live with, a sense of crisis, a sense of uh, being um, disappointed and betrayed. So all of those kinds of components that uh, really come out uh, in the, the Russian public imagination, especially over the past uh, five years or so, since Putin has begun to tap into that. Um, the subtitle of the book is Ethics and the Truth in uh, Post-Truth Russia. So post-truth has gained prominence as a concept in the last few years. How can losing Pravda help us understand contemporary changes in the status of truth and facts uh, in the United States or in Western Europe or on a global scale? What would you say? Yeah, for a very long time when I was working on first legislation and then the book, I kept thinking this is... I'm studying the future of American public <laughs> scene and relations uh, in uh, that respect. And uh, it is just so incredibly ironic how uh, it came out to be the case. So what um, I think what is very central to the concept of post-truth is the loss of trust between and among people and of people in institutions. And that's what we end up observing in the post-Soviet period very closely. And I think that's what is central in to understanding the post-truth moment or crisis in the contemporary Western uh, scene, political and public scene. The relationship between truth and trust is actually very close, as I also discover in the process of working on the book. 
we normally think of kind of truth-seeking as connected to a certain form of skepticism, of doubting, um, of kind of checking and rechecking, um, verification. Uh, but uh, another way of looking or of approaching relations of tr- truth uh, uh, is to looking is to look at truth as a deeply social practice and concept, and that's where we have a, a where that's where trust comes to be central. And I think in the contemporary discussions of post-truth in in the Western world. A lot of a lot is said about populism, and a lot is said about uh, this fake news, and a lot of attention is paid to how fake news spreads and whether it's the digital uh, revolution that has uh, exacerbated the whole story. I, uh, again, without um, denying the importance of all of this, I think that a, a crucial component of all of that is going on is that there is a need, uh, there is diminishing trust in uh, public institutions and uh, diminishing amount of solidarity, uh, civic solidarity among people. And I think that actually on the broader scale has to do with the neoliberal um, revolution that we have gone through. The, the, the trust is is a social and a public uh, good, if you will, and it's created through people's senses of uh, social solidarity with one another. And when those uh, ties start to be um, cut or threatened, uh, we end up uh, with with a diminishing significance of truth as something that connects us all together. Um, Losing Pravda includes material gathered through participant observation uh, and also through archives, old newspapers, interviews, memoirs, a film, media reports, writings of Russian scholars, and so on. So the material is very diverse, but still uh, the chapters are very compatible. So they really do tell different pieces of the same story. So if we take into account that the book follows the same topic, journalism, for over 50 years, and it, it, that it tells its story by tracking so many different sources. How did you maintain a focus? So how did you choose where to look and which sources to include into your research while you were uh, preparing the book? Thank you. That's a good one, isn't it? Um, the majority of chapters in the book are still pretty heavily ethnographic. Um, uh, the Soviet-focused chapters are, of course, more of a historical ethnography, and that's not super hard to conceive. I think uh, I talked to former Soviet journalists, uh, and I looked in the archives, and I read the newspapers, and I talked to former Soviet readers of those newspapers. So that's all right. The my more I got, I had more challenge when I tried to write a chapter on cynicism that um, it's the chapter four where I try, try to track the kind of the cynical zeitgeist if you will uh, in the post-Soviet Russia and to do that I ended up, I think I ended up spending maybe a year or two uh, trying to figure out how to write that book, that chapter because uh, the, the least ethnographic and the most kind of cultural analysis 
chapter of the whole book. And there I realized that I actually did not have a good preparation as an ethnographer, anthropologist, to write that because I didn't know at what point that if I have collected enough sources from public records, basically, from, uh, from and the, the records would be, you know, people's uh, blog posts, tweets, uh, emails that I've gotten, articles that have appeared, uh, signs on people's um, slogans when they came out into the street. Basically, the presence of these, <laughs> the presence of these public uh, expressions in, in the public sphere, I did not know at what point, say, you know, to demonstrate the utter uh, cynicism of um, so uh, of Russian officials in the late 2000s. I thought, well, how many you know stories or how many tweets is enough where a certain politician is mocking you know a certain uh, member of opposition or a certain journalist or just a citizen? Is you know five enough? Is fifteen enough? And do, how many do I quote and how many do I put into the notes? It was quite funny sometimes because I felt much more comfortable with data that had been gathered through participant observation and interviews um, in archival records, uh, the classic kind of material of uh, ethnographers, uh, compared to um, just trying to write an account of the entire cultural discourse in Russia in the 2000s. But uh, the, the readers can judge for themselves whether the story ends up being successful or not. But it was difficult. That part was the most difficult. Mm. It is a fascinating approach. Um, well, Natalia, we have taken up a lot of your time. In the last few minutes, uh, could you tell us what you're working on now? Thank you. I have been thinking of uh, returning to the work of Hannah Arendt, actually, uh, and looking at many things that are going on in contemporary Russia through the lenses uh, that Arendt had offered. Because a lot of the thinking about truth and politics that I end up using in the book uh, come from thinking with Arendt and many of her categories. Also, of course, Arendt is the person who, the scholar who has thought a lot about totalitarianism and what kinds of cultural conditions lead to a state of totalitarianism in a country uh, and she of course did not have a chance to do ethnographic work as she did a lot of political work and theorizing uh, on where totalitarianism comes from and how it um, spreads based on her own experience uh, in Germany and uh, her analysis of existing sources on Stalinism. Uh, a lot of new scholarship has come out, of course, on Nazism and Stalinism in particular, but uh, what we have an opportunity, I think, in contemporary period to do is to look at today's Russia, which is just a very, very, very difficult place for a lot of people to live and to hope and to breathe, uh, uh, frankly speaking, um, to, it's, it's an interesting opportunity, I think, to look at which of um, Arendt's theoretical frames, like uh, the notion of atomization of individuals, uh, the notion of losing the world in common, that people end up having no kind of solid moral ground to stand on, um, 
another important com component of uh, totalitarianism uh, thinking that she has offered in her in her writing. I think it would be important and interesting to to kind of test, if you will, um, some of those ideas of hers ethnographically in uh, contemporary moments in, in Russia. So that's what I'm thinking about. That sounds like a great project. Uh, Natalia, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Arna. Take care.